following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Welcome back, Diabetes. We're back with another episode, and we're getting into the second half of what we were talking about last time, um, which is more geared towards uh, diet in relationship to um, insulin, insulin resistance in many of the different tissue cells. Um, and um, we're going to talk about many different diets in this episode um, and get into um, the context of those diets and how it relates to um, you and uh, maybe the research that you're looking at. So it should be a good episode. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. And for those uh, following, line, following along at home, uh, that article, once again, is Modeling Insulin Resistance and Rodents by Alteration and Diet. What have high-fat and high-calorie diets revealed? Question mm. mark. Mm. Uh, yeah, and so... Uh, this is the second episode, uh, second part of all of this. And uh, we released that first part on YouTube, which was really exciting. Yeah. And uh, this one will be on YouTube as well. And so, you know, anyone wanting to watch and listen to us that way or want to share it that way, uh, feel free to do so because it's a whole different world up there. As of now, we have 18 views. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big time. But, uh, you know, that's still our goal is just to reach our – as many people as we can and just, uh, you know, have conversations that, that really impact both diabetics and non-diabetics in, in thought-provoking ways. So, uh, yeah, like Grady said, uh, you know, excited to record another one and continue the conversation from last time. So yep. almost, so before we dive into it, the theme or something that I think both Grady and I have walked away ourselves with this article as well as want others to maybe walk away from this conversation is that context matters, right? And context matters in two different ways, both in the literature that you're reading as well as context matters in how you're trying to apply nutritional science and meaning the individual. So context matters with the literature of we'll get into it of how, uh, what fats do people use? What kind of samples are people using? We talked about last time, the different types of rats and mice and things like that not just understanding the methods, but literally understanding how the literature applies to anything and everything else and always critically asking questions, not because you want to be skeptical of it hundred percent, but because you're trying to really understand and see the value in it and understand shortcomings, but as well as understand strengths of literature. So that's a big thing when doing any kind of nutrition reading and in the literature as well as the context of the human, you know, how are we applying this? Uh, you know, we're talking about all these different types of foods and, and fats and calories and carbs, but we're not talking about the gut at all. We're not talking about leaky gut. We're not talking about the microbiome. We're not talking about brain health. Yet all those things have giant impacts on your individual life. Mm -hmm. And if you're not considering how 
the big picture is affecting your life and how this dye that you're applying is really changing everything, then you're missing the boat on some things. And so context matters in both those things. And so it's important to, as we go through this, to keep those things in mind. And I think that's one of the big takeaways that both Dr. Grady and myself have kind of uh, re-highlighted as, as we review this article ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that being said, I remember even before we recorded our first one, uh, Grady, you were like, Garrett, what are you trying to, what are you trying to, you know, say with this paper? Because it almost like defeated our biases. <laughs> Both uh, Grady and I are, would probably fall in a lower carb category camp if we were through our hat in the ring of battles between diets and keto versus vegan versus all meat carnivore versus um paleo versus whatever have you like we'd definitely be in a more low carb camp but and maybe higher fat and this kind of almost it's really easy to read this article and say yeah that's bad mm-hmm. that, that's thanks for you two because you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> but uh that's not really the point anyways so that being said let's kind of dive into it so let's start talking about the actual diets itself. Let's start with the high fat diet doc. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things to consider that this article brings up when talking about high fat diets. Uh, one thing that I think is really important that these researchers pointed out that the variability that you need to consider when a paper is talking about high fat diet is how much fat is in a high fat diet. It literally can range with all these articles that these people have referenced, anywhere from 20 to 95% of your calories being fat that is described in the literature. So I, so right then and there, how can you be talking about the same thing if there's a range of 20 to 95% is high fat? You know, right mm-hmm. then and there, it's like red flags of just even using that term. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean... That's a pretty crazy range. If 20% of your calories is coming from fat versus 90% of your calories is coming from fat, to me, those are two totally different diets and um, the physiology is going to be completely different um, mm-hmm. with all that. So that's, you know, that's, that's why science is such a struggle, um, especially nutritional science, because there's just so many variables and then when you add on top of that, the variables of what is classified as a high fat diet um, makes it even harder to realize, okay, what is actually going on here? And is this what is actually being applied to me? So if you're applying a high fat diet to yourself and then you come across an article that says um, this is bad or this is good, well, you have to dig deeper into that article and say, okay, what are they using for that high fat diet? And is that comparable to what I'm doing? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not sure when this term was started to be used, but now there's even a different category, a very high fat diet, which Mm -hmm. researchers use to represent closer to more of a ketogenic type research. You know, that's something that has a little bit better of a range when you use that term of 80 to 95% of the calories from fat. Mm-hmm. But that's super hard to do. Like you would have to be a really hard keto head to be 95% of your calories from fat. Mm-hmm. You have to be like eating avocados 
that are drizzled in olive oil mm-hmm. while eating lettuce that's cooked in bacon grease while drinking some, I don't know, olive juice, like olive oil in a cup. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, I don't I, know. I, I would like to see like an outline of what they're actually eating in that diet. <laughs> and it's easy to do like 95% fat in, in a rat mice, you know, model type of study. And obviously it can be done too. Cause people do hardcore keto and mm-hmm. get results metabolically change a lot and, and live healthy lives that way. So obviously it's done, but I don't think I've ever been that hardcore keto for very long to say, yeah, I successfully had 95% of my calories especially as a type one diabetic yeah <laughs> from as fat you know that's maybe a little out of you know yours and i's reach yeah uh, to do something like that yeah, I, eat, I eat way too much protein to have 95 percent of my calories mm-hmm. from from fat and this is something that i think both you and i need to or maybe just i can't speak for you for this but, but i definitely need to read more about you know because i've seen people that are advocates of carnivore diet and those types of things that say you can be ketosis, but you know, as type one diabetics, we're like the perfect, you know, experiment to understand some of these things. And we know when you eat too much protein, it raises your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. So how can you stay in ketosis if you have enough meat? That being said, I've heard, like, I think it was on the Peter Tia podcast. You know, if you're a really well-trained athlete on the ketogenic diet, I heard that this guy say you could have like 300 grams of carbs and still be in ketosis. Mm Mm-hmm. I, that just blows my mind. Like yeah. I'm not nearly an expert of that kind of stuff, but uh, I know that protein, I know that protein raises glucose and it definitely can depending on how many carbs you eat or don't eat. So, yep. yeah. And that's why, again, it comes back to context and um, what your physiology is. And that can mm-hmm. change day to day, week to week because of activity levels, because of stress levels, mm-hmm. um, because of digestion and how that's working. Um, so to put a blanket across it and say, this is what happens. You can be in ketosis with carnivore or you can't be in ketosis with carnivore, um, isn't a responsible narrative because, um, each person is going to be different. Um, I know for the most part, um, even though I have a lot of protein throughout the day, um, I still can be in ketosis with that. And, um, I think it also depends on greatly on the timing of that protein. If you have all of your protein all at once in a, you know, big meal, Mm -hmm. that's going to be way different. If you have that same amount of protein spread out over, um, the whole day, um, because you're going to be digesting that much more efficiently, uh, much more thoroughly, and it's not going to be all hitting your system all at once. So your body doesn't have to convert that excess protein into sugar. Um, it can still utilize that protein because it's not hitting it all at once. Right. Like even last time, I mean, you can take exactly what you just said and apply it to what we talked about last time of if you're eating high fat and high carbs simultaneously and go, it's going within the muscle cell, you know, it wants to take the high, it wants to take the high carb and turn into fat mm-hmm. because that's, you don't need that many carbs. So why would you break down the fat you're eating to energy if you're already taking carbs and using energy to turn it into fat? Same thing like you just said, if you're eating too much protein, you're not going to be using it the same way and that's going to need to be turned to glucose. And, and so therefore you're wasting that and it 
further dampens that metabolic effect that you're even trying to get in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, that being said, you know, I, I wanted to read this, this quote from the, this part about the high fat diet is that uh, because the source of fat, this comes from the, the article, because of the source of fat used in high fat diets can vary. It is important to keep in mind that feeding rodents, diverse fatty acids, species have been demonstrated to lead to different metabolic outcomes. And this is outlined in the table that that they read. And so then it starts to talk about how saturated fats lead to a greatly different insulin resistance. These guys summarize that saturated fats lead to more insulin resistance than higher monosaturated fat diets. And that versus PUFAs or polyunsaturated fat lead to higher insulin resistance overall in the studies. So that last part aside, the bigger takeaway is that different fatty acid species lead to different metabolic effects. Mm-hmm. And when you're only looking at insulin resistance from that hyperinsulinemic, uh, I can't even say it, the, the clamp. Yeah, the euglycemic clamp. Thank you. <laughs> when you're only looking at that, con- that way, that's one context of looking at insulin resistance, right? Um, so th- that kind of addresses a little bit of the second part. But the fats that we eat, what kind of fat drastically changes everything mm-hmm. when we are discussing fat to begin with. Yeah. And we, we discussed that pretty thoroughly in the last one where we're talking about different fats and how some of them are more inflammatory than others. And we've talked about inflammation a lot in our um, previous podcasts where inflammation can affect insulin resistance. Um, so simply by adding fats that are more inflammatory um, and causing inflammation throughout the body, you can impact your insulin sensitivity. So um, again, the context of what fats are you putting into your body is really important with this. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of almost recap that things that the more uh, unsaturated it is, you know, the more polyunsaturated, the, uh, you know, your vegetable oils, how you cook them, the, how rancid these fats can get, how fast, uh, that all can be more inflammatory and therefore change things then too, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly like you're saying. Um, I think this was a, a, an interesting point um, that these researchers made is that in mice, diet levels of muscle triglyceride and diacylglycerides um, are, tend to be higher in S- saturated fatty acids and, and um monounsaturated fatty acids. However, this does not necessarily translate to different insulin sensitivity. And we talked about that kind of in the last episode, how, you know, these triglycerides and diglycerides can be markers of insulin sensitivity, but not markers of insulin sensitivity by themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And, um, and just to remind people, when we talked about um, the athletic or the athlete paradox, Mm-hmm. where they find a lot of fat in the muscle cells. Um, however, they are still insulin sensitive. And mm-hmm. um, so, it, like I said, it's context and it's not always the full picture. Mm-hmm. This was, I thought this was, I wish they talked more about this in this review and the sum- summary that literally the next sentence after this discussion was uh, interesting enough, when you supplement a high fat diet, with omega-3 oils, improve insulin sensitivity and muscle insulin action 
is observed, um, possibly through, you know, different mechanisms that don't need to be really said right now. Uh, but like we, like we need to almost talk about more about omega threes and omega sixes, but that right there changes everything too. Where, what are the fats that give you more omega threes versus omega sixes? You know, that's a huge conversation that you can't just even forget about to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it comes back to that inflammatory aspect and just the quality of fats. Um, and yeah, I thought that was kind of funny too, where they just kind of slid that in there right at the end and then didn't mm-hmm. really expand on that much. Um, because to me, that's really important if you're talking about fats, because there are a lot of fats that are not very good, that are destructive in the body, um, cause a lot of inflammation or a lot of dysfunction in the physiology. And so to ignore the fact that omega-3s on top of a high-fat diet um, change the insulin resistance and change the insulin sensitivity. So um, I think that should be looked at maybe a little bit more thoroughly, either via this um, you know, meta-analysis or review, and, or just simply, I don't know how much it's been studied specifically yet. And maybe that'll be the next article that, you know, or that type of article that we'll talk about is omega uh, threes and sixes and insulin sensitivity specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like even when I was tutoring and teaching uh, biochemistry to other, you know, chiropractic students, um, it became very clear to even people in that level of education uh, that even just basic understanding of fats of omega threes and sixes, how those are and what those are are so confused. People Mm -hmm. don't understand that. I wish there was almost more education, general education on those types of things. And so almost to be clear that omega-3s and 6s are unsaturated. They are polyunsaturated fats. And that's what those omegas mean. So you can't get omega-3s and 6s from saturated fats, which Mm -hmm. are mostly saturated fats, mostly animal fats, you know? And so great sources of omega threes and sixes can be fish, fish oil, uh, but as well as you, you know, some certain seeds like flax seeds, but we're not even going to get in the type of conversation of how those can differ, but just, uh, I wanted the base understanding right now that omega threes and sixes are polyunsaturated and they are essential with our essential fatty acids. We need them. So we do need polyunsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. But it's different than saturated fats, and we can't just get that only from beef and chicken and turkey. You know, we need other sources to get those too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, that the whole concept of omega threes and omega sixes is very complex because there's just, there's they don't start necessarily as those omega threes and and omega sixes when you ingest those those polyunsaturated fatty acids. Those, those fatty acids come into the body and then they are typically then converted into different fats and it goes down this chain of, of a pathway to get to where it needs to go. And so um, depending on what tap, type of fat that you're starting with, it can go sometimes either down to an omega-3 or over into an omega-6. Um, so yeah, it is a very complicated situation um, that is it is really hard to understand, not only for um, you know, graduate students, but definitely for the general public too. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, but they just kind of slid that in there almost like a lawyer, like, oh, you know, this is part of a contract, like, don't read this part because you're probably yeah. just going to skip to the conclusion anyways. Yeah. But here it is. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I agree. It was, it was kind of funny that they just had that in there and didn't expand on it more. Um, but I did want to read this phrase. Uh, so, additionally, a high-fat diet consisting predominantly a medium-chain saturated fatty acids. So, again, saturated fats can be more thought of animal meats. Um, they have full hydrogen. They don't have any double bonds. So, Medium chain meaning length. So saturated fats can have different short, medium, long chains. So again, predominantly high fat diets with medium chain saturated fatty acids, such as lauric acid and, and capric acid, the pro- predominantly fat acid species of coconut oil, do not seem to reduce insulin sensitivity as much as a high fat diet containing animal derived long chain saturated fatty acids. And that, and that statement alone has you know, five different references, one, two, yeah, five different references um, and making a statement like that. And so again, what fats are you eating? Where is it from? I mean, great. You probably use more coconut oil than I know of anybody, Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> and, uh, but that being said, you know, in this blanket statement of insulin sensitivity, uh, you know, more animal based, longer chains might be better than medium chains, but you know, medium chains have a place in the research as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, for the most part, as long as you're getting, for, at least to me, as long as you're getting good sources of those fats, you're going to have a pretty good combination because any source of fat, it's not going to just have one type of fat, fatty acid in it. It's going to have a, um, you know, a varying amount of different fatty acids in it. So um, coconut oil isn't 100% saturated fatty acids. Um, and for the most part, neither are animal um, sources. However, they are mostly saturated. Um, so you're, when you're looking at the foods that you're eating for fats, um, you're going to be getting a combination of a lot of those things. So looking at um, the sources of those things is really important um, and not just trying to focus in on one specific you know fatty acid because like with coconut oil it, it does say in here and you know the general consensus is yes there is a lot of medium chain um, fatty acids in coconut oil but at the same time it has a lot of other things in it so that's why you have um, MCT oil that's being pushed a lot right now um, because that's the isolated down version of coconut oil because um, it's just trying to isolate all those medium chain fatty acids versus having the whole um, complex of fatty acids in the coconut oil. So um, so I just wanted to point that out too. On a, on a side note, just because I think it's something that you would do, and a lot of people should do it, but it's very, it's not surprising that you do some of these things. Uh, what is probably the most interesting use of coconut oil that you use coconut oil for. <laughs> Obviously this, uh, this uh, review article is talking about diet. So I'm going to say exclude diet. Exclude diet. All right. So there's, <laughs> there's a couple of things. I won't say they're the most interesting things that I've ever used them for. However, they are pretty useful. Um, yeah. So some of them are, I, I've made, um, 
uh, deodorant with it. I've made my tooth. I make my toothpaste with it. What? Uh, yeah, I make my own toothpaste. And then um, one of the best things that I use coconut oil for is my skin, um, whether mm. it's dry skin. But one of the best things and the most effective things I use it for is actually sunburn. Um, so I use wow. a, I use a combination of two things. So if I know I'm going to be out in the sun for a really long time, don't use coconut oil before you go out in the sun because you will <laughs> probably just... burn worse than you would without it. <laughs> I was about um, to say, I feel like you would just bake, like oh, yeah. just lather out this oil and just get destroyed. Yeah, I've tried it before. It didn't work out too good. <laughs> but however, um, I will, if I know I'm going to be outside for a long time and I'm a pretty pale person anyways, um, I will put on uh, carrot oil and that actually does help um, with the sun. Now with the carrot oil, after you get out of the sun, it looks like you are burnt. However, when I put coconut oil on afterwards, mm -hmm. I'll wake up the next day, totally gone. Like almost like I'll get, maybe have a little bit of a tan, but like almost not even a tan. Um, wow. So that combination I found works really well. Um, I don't have, and even if I do get sunburn, like I forget to put on the carrot oil or I'm out like super long and I get burnt. If I put the coconut oil on and be pretty religious about it, I don't get the stinging, I don't get the heat, um, and I don't really peel hardly at all. Do you use combo, or have you ever tried combo of like aloe and coconut oil? No, I, I for a while I was using a lot of aloe and combinations of different things with aloe, um, and then you know one time I just used straight up coconut oil because that's all I had at the time. And man, it did the trick way better than anything I had tried before with like combinations mm -hmm. of different things. So I'm like, Hey, just keep it simple. Just get a jar of coconut oil, dip my finger in there and just rub it in. I'm sorry. Like, I hope you don't, didn't mind sharing that. Obviously we didn't plan on talking about that, <laughs> but uh, I think it's uh, something interesting that you do that people could try or, or worth trying. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just remember seeing, uh, when we were living uh, together in St. Louis, you come back from whether it be golfing or mowing the lawn and you just like take your coconut oil out and you just, just yep. start lathering on. I'm like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> yep. um, and so that, that's just another thought of using food as medicine as well as context matters, right? Like you're literally mm -hmm. using nutrients of natural uh, food, coconut oil, and putting it on your skin, dermis, part of like an organ mm -hmm. and it absorbs that uses that for detoxification processes for healing processes in a way that most would never even think to do is carrot oil easy easily accessible like um it's a little bit harder to find obviously and then coconut oil um get from like I, but i think i found it on amazon so you, yeah okay. it should, shouldn't be too big of a deal gotcha uh at the top of your head can you talk like do you know like any kind of mechanism of how like coconut oil on the dermis epidermis of the skin, like, or to damage skin. Do you, could you comment on any of that? And you can say you plead the fifth. That's okay. We can just move on. Yeah. I've, well. ne I've never dug too deep into it. Okay. Um, so yeah. All right. So uh, let's move on. Right. So that was some commentary on high fat. You know, uh, we've openly said how polyunsaturated fats, there's a lot of um, data 
or how that might be better for insulin sensitivity resistance. We've kind of talked a little bit how that's true, but so are other things. Um, but moving on to something that I think everyone, no matter what camp you're in, can agree on is the combination of high fat, high sugar, or high sucrose. You know, mm-hmm. what commonly is used in uh, diet, you know, dietary um, induced obesity or just represents the sad diet or standard American diet mm-hmm. is high fat, high carbs, high fat, high sugar. So let's, let's take some moments and talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they pretty much, I mean, I think this section is pretty short in their, in their article because I mean, everybody can agree on it. It's not a big surprise that combination of high fat and high sugar is going to drive you into metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance so much quicker than anything else. Because like we mm-hmm. talked about before, when you combine sugar and fat, the body just wants to store all that away. Um, mm-hmm. So it goes immediately into storing the fat away and then trying to process all that sugar and converting it into fat. So mm-hmm. um, you're going to be creating a lot of different metabolic um, problems when you do that. And um, when that happens, your insulin resistance um, shoots way up super quick. And I think they even go into how now um, when they do diet induced obesity for you know rat studies or, or what have you, they use more so now a high fat and high sugar diet um, to get those mice in, in that metabolic syndrome much faster now. Yep. Yep. You know, it was a, they say right here, this um, in the late eighties, is when they really realize this, that using this type of diet is, uh, can one induce um, metabolic syndrome. In fact, that, you know, they state it's sufficient to produce many of the pathophysiological changes in the metabolic syndrome pathway. And as well as, I think this point is really interesting about it too, is that, and it can bring up a good talking point, is that in particular, the study was done on a strain of rat, yeah, rat, right? Yeah, strain of mice, sorry. Strain of mice labeled, and for anybody else, this is what I do when I read an article for the first time. If it seems weird and not important, I just bypass it. So you can do that while I'm saying this. <laughs> but the strain of mice is C57BL-6J. And yeah, so, one. yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyways, but what they also realized with this strain uh, of mice that they are predisposed and easier to get diet-induced obesity than other strains of mice. And so that can lead into the conversation of genetically predisposed and therefore epigenetics as well. These mice, if not fed this diet, would not be fat right? They specifically Mm -hmm. are feeding them and they're using this strain because they are more likely to get fat when feeding this. They have a preloaded gun and that diet then can change their genetic profile in a way where their phenotype or their physical expression ends up being obesity much faster than other strains of mice. For that, you can think about other groups of people, you know, other genetics. And this idea of epigenetics and predisposition that we is definitely more accepted, you know, this past decade of epigenetics compared to not. What I'm getting at is that 
the diets you choose because of our genetics and predisposition can have a drastic impact on our expression of health. Mm-hmm. And that includes high fat, high sucrose. That would include high fat. Some people actually can't do a high fat diet because they can't express the actual lipocarriers in, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like there are reasons why some people thrive on diets and some people don't. Mm-hmm. And I think that just should be highlighted too. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it comes back like that stimulates thought in my head about the whole, well, my, the rest of my family has heart disease or diabetes, so I will probably get it. And it always breaks my heart when I hear that because that's not, that's not the full story. You, you aren't, mm-hmm. you aren't just born with diabetes uh, or type two diabetes or metabolic syndrome or, or those things you, for the most part, end up earning that um, title. So um, it's not, not the full story and um, never, never count yourself out. Um, you gotta, you gotta, first of all, take control of your health, take responsibility for your health. Um, and yes, it is going to be harder for some people than others um, to maintain proper health. Um, and it just takes consistency. And so um, I think bringing up the point that it's not just about your genetics, it's also about your epigenetics and your epigenetics are your choices day in, day out. Um, and that's ultimately more important than your genetics because you can turn on and turn off genes, um, with your choices. Yep. Yep, exactly. And, you know, let you, you now it's almost not be, beating a dead horse, but like you said, the consistency, your choices, um, you have the control of what's going on with all this stuff. And it's very clear how high fructose or, and high sucrose and high carb combination with high diet um, can alter these things. And But it should be empowering the fact uh, that you, you can change these things. It actually reminds me a little bit, that phrase of, uh, not phrase. So for anybody, I'm a big fan of a show called Bojack Horseman. And, and so to describe a scene real fast, uh, the guy was talking about, they were talking about happiness. And so it was like, Oh, like, you know, it, you have the power to be happy. Like, you know, you can control that. You have the responsibility. Like you have the ability to, to, to do that you know it's like i don't want to be responsible for my own happiness not even responsible (laughs) enough to like stay sober enough for like five hours like the (laughs) says you know says the character in the show uh but that so that responsibility can be scary but at the same time it really should be empowering Mm -hmm. that you know you can overcome these things and it doesn't have to be a life sentence um you know especially you know that also makes me think of not just type 2 diabetes but type 1 diabetes right so in terms of patterns that you're observing yourself with your glucose and no. So if you are putting in the work, you are getting the data, whether it be CGM data or you're checking your sugar, you're tracking things, you might notice patterns and those patterns are because you're predisposed to react a certain way. And because then what you're eating, that makes you act a certain way. Uh, we've kind of talked about how comparing you and I in the gym, but we're lifting heavy, you know, you will typically will always go down. Mm-hmm. If you're lifting heavy and strenuous because of me and how wound up my nervous system is. And just, that's almost like part of my genetics and just my personality, my being that like how wound up I am, 
I'm going to be releasing more cortisol probably than you. And we're releasing more epinephrine. That's going to raise my glucose. And so I actually have a higher chance of raising my blood sugar while strength training than you. And, but then I can alter certain things in my diet and epigenetically and change things and take that power back and have a different result. But everyone's not cut and dry the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, um, I would also encourage people not to get frustrated trying to compare yourself with other people because um, even though you see somebody who can eat pizza all day long and still skate, stay skinny as a pole, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're metabolically healthy. Um, they may look healthy on the outside, but that person still, if they're eating a bunch of crap, they're going to have a lot of inflammation. They're going to have a lot of physiologic um, problems in their body because of that. And like I said, some, for some people, it's going to be harder than others, but ultimately it comes down to consistency. Um, if you're consistently eating, um, a diet congruent with your health, you're consistently following a, um, exercise routine that's consistent with your goals and your health, then you're going to be winning in life and in your health. Um, and so always, always stay focused on what your goals are and not try and, just compare yourself to somebody that's totally different, whether genetically or physiologically at that time. True words, Grady. True words. So I think that's enough about the epigenetic soapbox and taking control of it. Yes. Uh, So anything else you want to say about high fructose uh, or I keep saying fructose. I don't know why I'm afraid of just high sugar, high fat. Um, Maybe, can you desc- maybe can you describe like what that means and why uh, st- it's similar to a standard American diet? Like, what is that? Let's maybe put some context and not just say this thing is bad. Mm-hmm. Like to anybody who's uh, just kind of moving through life without more of a science background, like what does that mean to everyday person? What is the standard American diet and why does it represent a high fat, high sugar diet? Yeah. So basically a high fat, high sugar diet when I think of it, I think about pizza because you have a lot of carbs in there and you have a lot of fat in there. You have a lot of greasy um, oils in there. And well, most of those oils are pretty inflammatory as well. So you're getting a lot of bad combinations there. And so when you're eating both high carb and high fat, you are ingesting a lot of calories and a lot of fuel. And if you don't need all that fuel, then your body has to store that away. And so most of the time you're going to be storing that away as fat and not only the fat part of that, but then on top of that, if you're having a lot of carbs on top of that and your body doesn't, doesn't need all those carbs, then it has to store that away as well. So now you're adding on top of that fat storage. And so that whole combination um, is a recipe for developing a lot of metabolic conditions because when you start adding fat, Fat is not just a storage unit. Fat does a lot of metabolic things. It does a lot of um, hormonal things, and it does a lot of immune things. Um, so it, it releases cytokines, which are um, chemical messengers for the immune system that um, essentially target or tell the immune system where to target inflammation. Um, and then you also have the hormonal interactions with um, the sex hormones, Um, converting testosterone into estrogen and estrogen into testosterone. 
Um, so the more fat you develop and store away, the more those things are going to be coming into play because those fat cells are getting bigger. And then eventually those fat cells are going to, um, um, reproduce and create more fat cells. And then you have more opportunities for all of those scenarios to then drive more of those problems. Yeah. And you use the example of pizza to describe all of that, but it's not just pizza. I think plenty of people know that pizza is just bad, right? Yeah. And that for all those reasons, and then the mechanism that you just described, actually my go-to when I think about that is ice cream mm, uh, yeah. because it's more simple sugars than, than pizza, but yeah. uh, but then there's a lot of high fat uh, in most ice creams too. But, you know, it's literally almost when we think of American diet, probably you're going to think about fast food, mm-hmm. takeout, bar food, uh, KFC, you know, you're getting the awful fats and the, and the deep fried, and then you're throwing on mashed potatoes, throwing on all these high carbs, you're throwing in cake, you're throwing in all these things that have a combination of high fat, high carb. You know, you think about uh, a burger from McDonald's, bun, fries, carbs, shake, and bad fats in the oil, bad fats that the fries were cooked in. You know, then you think about even what might be healthy and and somebody, you know, let's say it's not very fat heavy on the outside, but really everything is cooked in oil or sauteed in a bad oil, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're having then rice on the side of it or something else. And then you're not moving the way you need to move. And so you're metabolically predisposed to not be able to handle that type of fat and that type of carb at the same time, you know. What American style food like is taking a bunch of then all their cultures. You can think of then eating Italian food. You know, you can think about eating uh, Mexican and Hispanic food um, that it's more American styled, which means more fat, more carbs. Like the bread in our in America is so much sugary. Like so, it's complex and simple sugar, and then you throw like Crisco or whatever like gross <laughs> butter. Like, you know, you know, on it or, and then it just doesn't make sense. I remember when I first went low carb, really low carb for the first time. And I just cut out like grains, cut out carbs. And I could smell the sugar in bread. Oh yeah. Like I would be, I'd be sitting next to me or somebody would be sitting next to me and I would look at them and they're eating a sandwich. And it's just like a deli sandwich that they made themselves. They got the deli meat. They got all of it. It looks like a pretty balanced, like my plate, which is an awful suggestion, my plate. Um, But it looks like a standard my plate type of diet. And I can literally smell the sugar that is within the bread. And it's just there's so much sugar in everywhere and everything. Mm -hmm. So the standard American diet is essentially eating in this country, in America. There are some people listen to this, not in America, so, you know, Anyways, but essentially eating here without thinking about it, you're going to be eating high fat, high carb. If you're not consciously trying to think about what are you eating and why? Yeah. Yeah. And they, they kind of talk about this in, in the, this article where they talk about uh, cafeteria diets, which is basically yeah. a choice diet. You choose what you eat. It doesn't really matter. Um, they're not strict on like eating high fat or low carb or, or whatever. It's just whatever is in the cafeteria, you get to choose from it. And essentially, it comes down to the same thing as high fat and high sugar because 
Um, ultimately, those are the things that taste good. If you have a, a lot of carbs and a lot of sugar and you combine them, typically those foods are very tasty. And, um, you know, you can argue if it's, um, you know, built into our systems to where we crave those things because they are big energy um, energy reservoirs because fat has a lot of energy in it and also sugar is very quick burning and so our bodies tend to crave those things and our taste buds are typically geared towards craving those things because of that reason yeah and i think that this idea because this is probably the first time i've seen in literature like a cat the what's labeled a cafeteria diet Mm -hmm. and it's like you know you go to college or you're in not even in college, but maybe you're in like a summer camp. Uh, if you're lucky enough to do that type of thing and you go to the, literally the cafeteria and you have all these options, what's going to happen. You're going to probably eat the food that tastes the best, mm-hmm. but it's probably the worst for you. Right. Um, and so it's almost like a different way of phrasing the sad American diet and this high fructose. Yes, I did it again. High carb, you know, high sugar, high fat diet. Um, but it almost adds a little more psychology to it, which is important then, you know, I was actually just telling somebody, I was like, man, I, the psychology, like the literature on psychology is like, I can't even comment on because that's not my field. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as, you know, just practitioners of nutrition, working with people, working with people holistically, we need to think about it in some way. And, and the power of choice, the power of free will. Ooh, do we want to go down this rabbit hole of free will right now, Grady? <laughs> no. That's a no. <laughs> Anyways, that's but, a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, but rabbits don't, uh, anyways. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to move on. I agree with what you said. It's an interesting concept, having the choice of, you know, strictly only one type of food. Maybe that's only high carb versus having the combination. That's essentially what this they did with these rodents. You know, these rodents were able to eat a combination at their leisure uh, chow that was high in beef, you know, particles and high in protein and high carb. And then had a combination of carbs and fats, you know, so they could kind of nibble on whatever they wanted. And they had worse glucose disposal, meaning almost glucose utilization, right? They weren't able to dispose the glucose and use it in a way. Um, Then animals that only had access to one chow um, and that group ends up showing better um, hepatic glucose production, which is a marker then, like we talked about, of liver or hepatic insulin resistance. So interesting statement when they wrote this in the article just because those are almost two different like ways of characterizing insulin resistance but yet they combine in the same sentence but again uh not even literature is straightforward because you would think you would want to comment on it if it's the same thing but here we are mm-hmm. all right let's move on to high carb the straight high carb diet so this would be pretty hard to do just somebody's literally eating carbohydrates Mm-hmm. or mostly carbohydrates, like not eating a lot of protein, not eating a lot. Of, it would literally be like eating fruits and bread and grains. And like you eat a lot of rice, you know, just literally high carbohydrate diets. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think when you read um, about and what they had to say about high carbohydrate diets? Um, so 
Um, I think they talk a lot about how um, typically, or at least in what they found, that a lot of these a lot of these diets will help with insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, um, and and obviously we have our biases with the lower carb, um, but at the same time, I think we've I think we talked about this last time, but um, as long as you're for the most part on one side or the other the combination of high fat and high carbs is really the worst. When you start to isolate and get closer to one end of the spectrum or the other, typically your blood sugar regulation is going to be much better. Um, and so that's kind of what they, they show here. And, to, and for the most part, it's in regards to insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. And the reason I think that they go into this um, so much is because for the most part, at least what they state in their study is they're going mainly off of the uh, euglycemic clamp, which is basically the euglycemic clamp is essentially they're giving a dose of insulin to essentially drop the blood sugar. And then they're infusing glucose to try and maintain it at a certain level. So they can compare how much insulin versus how much glucose it's taking to, um, um, to keep that blood sugar level um, level. And that's how they're determining the insulin resistance level, essentially. And so in that regard, when you're eating purely glucose or carbohydrates, your body's going to become very efficient at utilizing those carbohydrates and trying to get those into the cells. And so it's going to be, a, you know, a glucose burning machine. And we've talked about fat burning machines before. Um, so essentially, obviously your insulin resistance is going to be, um, better. However, it again, comes back to the context. What are you eating in regards to those high carbohydrate diets? Are you eating a lot of processed sugars? Are you eating a lot of vegetables or fruits? And, uh, that comes into a big play because if you're eating just straight up refined sugars, the story is going to be a little bit different than it is if you're going to be eating a lot of vegetables. It's almost like in my mind, I don't even like, obviously vegetables are carbohydrates, but like I also consider vegetables, carbohydrates, <laughs> right? Like in America, we have, you know, in the United States, there are so many carbs and not the form of carrots in the form of spinach, in the forms of broccoli, you know, in the form of whatever have you. And like you should, it's, it's just mind blowing to me, the 90 day difference of processed sugars versus natural sugars. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, mm -hmm. um, go on, you're about to say something. Yeah, cause well, I like that you brought up the carrots because I have a lot of people either or several people who are trying to go keto or on the low carb spectrum. And um, we go over different foods and stuff like that. And, um, you know, some people are concerned about carrots or certain mm -hmm. vegetables um, in regards to how much sugar um, is in them. And for the most part, like you said, I'm not too worried about carrots. If you're eating carrots and you're worried about your blood sugar spiking from those, 
um, I think you're doing pretty good. If, right. If you're eating, um, you know, obviously like ice cream, it's going to be way different. Um, or even just like, you know, a candy bar that doesn't have a lot of fat in it and just has sugar, you're going to be way better off with that carrot. Um, even if they have the same amount of sugar in it, because you have fiber in there, you also have good nutrients in there. Um, that's going to affect your metabolism and, um, just your overall physiology. And, um, so the context of, of what you're looking at is really important because the high carb or sorry, the low carb, you can get caught up in being, I think too extreme to where you're just like, you know, really focused on super low carb. Like I can't eat this, this many carrots because Hey, that's going to put me over that 50 grams per day that I'm allowed. Um, so for me, like, and that's where it comes down to when I talk about like cheating, like if you're cheating on carrots, I'm pretty happy with that. If you're cheating on ice cream, I'm not too happy about that. <laughs> but and, and carrots have a satisfying crunch, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to just nibbling on carrots. But yeah, I, I agree. I remember, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, somebody was asking me something similar. Um, you know, can I have carrots on keto? I'm like, of course. Like, you're not trying, especially if you're not trying to measure your ketones. Like, mm -hmm. if you're literally just trying the diet, you're just starting out, eat as many carrots as you want. I will say with the type one that it is obviously then a little different, right? Mm -hmm. um, Cause I think both you and I have had glucose spikes when we don't eat a lot of carbs, we are eating the carrots and we're really effective at, at putting those, you know, carbohydrates in and digesting them, breaking them up and putting it in our blood. Cause I've mm -hmm. definitely had to give insulin for carrots. I'm sure you have too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, Again, it comes down to the context of the situation that you're in too. Cause like you said, if you're, if you've been eating super low carb and then you go and add carrots in, if, especially if you're type one diabetic, you're probably going to notice a bigger change than if you were, you were eating a bunch of like high carb meals, whether that's pasta or pizza or ice cream or whatever it is. If you were kind of eating that pretty consistently and then you eat a bunch of carrots your blood sugar is probably going to be pretty good and you may be even dropping because your body's not spiking as much because it's going to be more level. Um, and it has a way better or way different effect on the overall physiology in the body. And so, um, again, it comes back to that context. And at the same time, it also depends on, um, you know, your exercise levels. Like, you know, I've eaten carrots, you know, around the window of exercising and I don't really have to take any insulin for it. Whereas like, you know, if I don't work out that day or I, you know, need a snack later at night and I haven't been that active for, for several hours, then it's a little bit different story. I will have to take probably a little bit more insulin than I would normally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, context matters. I think that's going to be the title of this episode This context matters. Yep. Much shorter than our last title. <laughs> last title was pretty long. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, well, yeah, no, uh, I, I agree. And, you know, kind of going back to the article, you know, I almost want to do it justice because it, it does ring home and, and you've said it, but it does say the benefits 
being on a high carb diet, right? Mm-hmm. And that it does show, uh, and there is research out there that, you know, having high sucrose, high fructose, um, and just high carb can positively impact um, overall insulin reduction of insulin resistance. Um, but I thought this part was interesting and that I'll just read it straight off the article. The fructose, um, and mostly, so the fructose part of sucrose, so when you're eating high carb and when you're eating sucrose, um, the fructose part of it, because sucrose is a combination of glucose and fructose. Um, the fructose part of the sucrose seems to be the main driver of loss of insulin action possibility, uh, possibly because, so even that I just was saying, now uh, there is evidence uh, to say that can positively impact insulin resistance. Um, there's obviously data that says otherwise too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyways, the fructose part of sucrose can be the main driver of loss of insulin action, possibly because of its uh, preferential metabolism in the liver and subsequent increase in liver lipids as a result. The molecular mechanism behind insulin resistance caused by dietary fructose are mainly focused on the strong hypertriglycemia, or in other words, high triglycerides, hypertriglyceridemia, and hepatic lipid accumulation explained in detail um, by another author in an article. So I think that's interesting too, because there is data on the dangers of fructose and where's fructose and fruit. Um, but I don't, again, I don't think you and I would say that you should avoid fruit. I don't think anyone should ever feel guilty for eating fruit. Um, so I have seen people online to say like, you should never eat fruit because fructose is bad. Well, fructose in high fructose corn syrup is bad. Fructose in your ketchup is bad. But, uh, and obviously fructose in these studies are more concentrated. So that's almost comparing apples to oranges, no fruit pun intended, but, but, uh, you know, I think if you were eating a banana, you shouldn't feel bad for that. If you're eating mangoes, shouldn't feel bad for that. If they're fresh mangoes, uh, that should be the sweets that you have. You know, when you have low blood sugar, it shouldn't be eat a Snickers. Mm Mm-hmm. It should be have low blood sugar, eat a mango mm-hmm. or blueberries in, in your case or my case that I just, that w- it's easy to devour a million of them at once. <laughs> and during the yep. So I don't know. I thought, I think that that was an interesting part of the fructose that possibly the reason why it can affect insulin action is because essentially it helps accumulate liver lipids and triglycerides within the liver and therefore um, insulin resistance within the liver. I thought that was mm-hmm. an interesting point that they made. Yeah. Yeah. And um, coming back to the fruit discussion, again, it, it depends on what your goals are with your diet. If you are, um, if you are trying to go keto and then you start adding in lots of fruits with that, then you can get into a situation where your body's, you're kind of fighting your body with that. And um, you're getting into like a high fat, high carb type situation. It's not necessarily as bad as the sad diet 
or the standard American diet because the, the, it has good sources of carbs and fat. Um, but at the same time, if your goal is to lose weight or um, change your insulin resistance or what have you, um, then eating lots of fruit uh, may not be good. Like you said, if you're going to cheat on something, um, fruit is way better than anything else. Um, so like, especially when your taste buds are trying to change over into um, eating lots of carbohydrates into um, low carbohydrates, then yes, you may have to supplement some fruits in there to help get your craving so that you that way you're not going crazy um, late at night when you're craving ice cream. Um, so again, it comes back to context and using some of those strategies to help make yourself more successful and, um, understanding that, um, the diet should be driven by your goals. Um, and trying to follow that is really important too. Um, and then another thing I wanted to bring up with this whole thing, especially with the, uh, high carb diet, you also have to take a big step back and look at the overall picture of the human body with this diet. Because if we're eating you know, a plant-based diet and not having a lot of animal protein in there, um, then you have to start you know, navigating and wondering and um, trying to figure out which nutrients are you not getting because you don't have um, animal proteins in your diet. So um, that's another thing that you need to um, be thinking about um, not only insulin resistance and, you know, blood sugar metabolism, but then also the overall function in the body. Um, cause you know, even though blood sugar, um, is very important, it's not the full picture. So you have to make sure that overall your body is going to be working better. Um, so making sure you're getting all the nutrients that you need and, um, trying to bring down inflammation if you need to, or whatever your goals are with your health. Um, you need to also take a big step back and make sure that everything fits um, with what you're doing. Yeah, no, I think you said a whole bunch of things there that are really, really important. The first and foremost, more that's more general, your diet should reflect your goals. Mm -hmm. Like, don't just follow something that just because it's a fad, don't follow something because that's what you think you should supposed to. Don't follow something even because something said made you feel bad for not doing it. You know, you shouldn't just because all your friends are only eating keto, you shouldn't just eat keto just because some friends, you know, are very hardcore vegetarian vegan because they ethically make the argument of supporting animals and, you know, try to make arguments for, you know, saving the earth, you know, whatever have you uh, doesn't mean you should do it. It should be based on your goals, mm -hmm. you know? That's really important. You also said then their insulin and sensitivity isn't the whole picture. Yeah. It's so easy. It's like this is a diabetes podcast. Mm -hmm. Literally the whole point of what we're try always trying to talk about is diabetes and type 1 and type 2 and prediabetes and avoiding a world where in 2050, 2050 by the CDC, one in three people have diabetes. Mm -hmm. Like that's literally our missions. And that's like – literally our purpose here on earth is diabetes you and i but that's not the whole picture mm -hmm. that's what you just said and it's so easy as a diabetic to only care about insulin 
only to care about glucose, only think what insulin does in the context of your blood sugar on your Dexcom or on your Guardian or on your free livery or whatever have you. That's not the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, how you digest food, how you move through life, uh, you know, your bowel movements, your thyroid function, you know, all kidney function, so many things that metabolism is the fire that fuels all these things, but your body is more than just metabolism, you know? So keeping a healthy nervous, nervous system, keeping a healthy immune system. It's 2020. Everyone's trying to talk about the immune system right now, mm-hmm. which is intertwined with the nervous and endocrine uh, system, you know, and those are tied in with everything and anything else anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not to only hyper-focus on your insulin, on your glucose, uh, and what makes that better, but what makes your quality of life better? What makes you healthier overall? What can you stick to? What can you be happy about? What's going to bring you joy? Because the psychology of all of this and how you think about these things. And like, if you're super, super strained and you're like, I, even that I've been doing it for five months, I hate the fact that I can't eat meat or I, even that I've been doing it for five months, I hate the fact I can't have fruit. Like, that's literally going to impact everything else about your quality of life mm-hmm. and your health. So, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, I also wanted to say two po- more points on the section of high carb diet. Then we'll move on to variations in protein, and then we'll probably wrap it up um, from there. So, I wanted to read this point because. Uh, it, this one statement by these authors compares the this high carb diet, right? Or this high, yeah, high carb diet. So, from few, well, I guess a few comparative studies published, it seems likely that in rodents, a high fat diet and a high fat, high sucrose diet generates a greater degree of insulin resistance than high sucrose slash fructose diets. And that's shown in a couple different articles. Um, I think two in, in the table that they reference. Um, so they're saying, even that we have put disclaimers on what a high fat diet means, even that we said probably high fat, high sucrose is probably the worst diet. There's some research out there that says maybe that high fructose and high, high carb might be better for you for insulin action, which is one small component of your life, um, than high fat diet and the sad diet. Now, I definitely would argue against the sad diet part, but there's arguments and then arguments to make holes of when comparing the high fat diet. But that's what these authors said. And so sometimes you just need to respect what's there. But I think this point about comparing high fat and high carb diets is really interesting, right? You and I were talking about this a little bit beforehand because they say this in this article. So the energy of fat and carbs are different. You know, if we talk about it in calories, right, it's four, you know, four calories versus nine calories, you know, more energy and fat, fat storage than there is carbs. Um, In this article, they refer to it as kilojoules. So, you know, it's a different form of heat measurement. Uh, But anyways, to supplement the difference in calories, sometimes in these comparative studies of high fat diet to high carb diets, they literally add fiber 
and they add calories in the form of starch and fiber to therefore try to equal the high-fat diet to make it a control. Because you want to control as many variables as possible in a study. But what these authors even comment on is when you do that, you're literally adding fiber and starch that's going to affect your gut differently. It's going to affect your microbe different. So how can you really, you're adding something to, to add a control, but yet you are changing the profile of somebody's microbiome or a rat mouse's microbiome by adding fiber and starch that are going to feed off that differently than just fat. Maybe that's the point of it. Maybe that's saying, oh, well, high, you know, having more carbs, you're likely to do that. But that's still apples to oranges. Again, ignore the fruit pun. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's just a really interesting point that a lot of these studies add that to equal one another, but changes it drastically. Mm, yeah, you're adding adding something to try and get rid of a variable, but in reality, you're probably actually creating more variables um, as a result. And at the same time, um, coming back to um, my other argument about like most, at least what they state in the, in the article is that they're going mainly off of the euglycemic clamp as well. Um, so it's not necessarily the full picture in regard to insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity too. Um, so again, understanding the context of the article will help you better understand how it's actually being applied and, you know, what's, what's actually being said in the article without trying to, um, being influenced by what the um, authors are saying. So, um, I like what you said about bringing up the difference in the amount of fat in each diet too, because, um, with these studies, how do we know if, cause they, we could look through each one of these, uh, articles that they, uh, cite, but there's like a billion of them. Um, to see exactly what percentage of fat they were using for um, this comparison of high carb and high fat and insulin resistance. And because like you said, there could be a scenario where they're using this high fat diet, but in reality, it's almost like a high fat, high sugar diet uh, because it's only, like they said, only 20% of your calories were from fat. So how is yeah. you know how is that not a sad diet um so yeah. so yeah it's it's hard to dissect dissect all of this review article because of that reason um and it, not everything's super clear with that so um again always remember the context of what's being said in the article and also the context of um what your body is going through too mm. And almost to play, that was a great point to, you know, talk about what we brought up earlier about the 20% thing. Um, but to almost to play devil's advocate, right? We poke holes at people bashing on high fat diets by saying, well, what fats were they using? Mm-hmm. And then we would argue, you know, the more peanut oils, the more soy oils, the more vegetable oils, canola oils, those types of things would have, of course, have less of a favorable results in studies, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like how we put calls and things. But then somebody could say, like, as I'm trying to call out, well, you're using fiber. You're mm-hmm. using, and then they might be like, that's the point. Like we are then therefore changing the microbiome. Like that's the advantage. And then mm-hmm. you could say, well, how, how is that changing the microbiome? Like what, 
species are you altering? And then somebody could then, <laughs> some expert that could come in and say, yeah, high carb is good because you get to add these things in and this bacteria is getting, you know, this yeast is going down, this yeast is going up, this bacteria is going up, this bacteria is going down. And so therefore they can poke holes in a, in a similar way and that we can poke holes at what type of fat it is. Mm-hmm. So just playing devil's advocate, keeping that in mind, I think is important too, as we move through things and as we try to discover what's best for yourself and let's guess what's best for you and I, what's best for our patients, you know, whatever have you, mm-hmm. um, because everyone can put, poke holes at everything, but I think we need to be able to think through it yeah. and what's actually going on. So, you know, I think moving forward, that's, that's a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Ultimately, like in my practice, for the most part, like I am biased towards lower carbohydrates. So for the most part, that's what I have people focus on. But at the same time, I have some people who who think more towards that, um, not necessarily high carb, but like, you know, vegan or um, vegetarian. They, they, their mind or their brain is more, it's more congruent with their way of thinking. And, um, so I say, okay, let's try it and we'll try it in a, in the most beneficial way possible. Still cutting out, um, as much of the processed stuff as we can eating the best version of that diet that we can to help improve your function. And we'll see how it works. Um, some people, I will say for the most part, it hasn't worked for a lot of people. Um, but I give them that opportunity and we try to do the best we can with it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, then we'll try something else. That's real cool to hear. Have you had anybody have some success, you know, in, in the practice that you've had? Um, in some areas, yes, but overall, for the most part, um, other systems in the body just don't work, work as well because right. of it. Um, so right now, at this point, I mean, I'm only two years in. Um, at this point, I haven't had a patient that does well on like a vegan or a vegetarian diet, um, but they're out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool, cool. All right, so let's talk about protein and then and wrap it up with some, you know, diabetic wins. So uh, in this article, they then talk about how varying proteins and altering dietary protein can therefore change um, your metabolic profile and glucose, you know, tolerance and insulin sensitivity, resistance, things like that. So what did you think about this section of the article? Um, yeah, so with the proteins, I thought it was really good that they brought this up. Um, there was one specific quote that I had, or maybe not a quote, maybe more of a generalization, that uh, the source of the protein really mattered because um, they compared fish protein um, and casing and soy protein. So fish protein actually enhanced insulin sensitivity when mm-hmm. compared to casein and soy. And casein is dairy protein, if, if you aren't familiar with that. Yeah, say that, say that again for the people in the back. Yeah, so fish protein, when they compared that with casein or soy, actually enhanced insulin sensitivity. Mm. And I think that's really important too, because at least here in you know the United States, I would say probably majority of people, that would probably be a hard majority line, but I don't think we eat enough fish. Fish is expensive. The type of fish isn't readily available. Mm-hmm. And so eating fish is a really beneficial type of protein, right? But yet 
Um, the casein from dairy and milk and cheese or, or soy protein, which people try then if they're avoiding dairy or they're avoiding, uh, they are vegetarian, you know, trying to get soy because of the uh, completeness and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's more of a complete, you know, that's, or that's more of a beneficial for insulin sensitivity, but yet we don't eat them. Like I definitely don't buy fish nearly as much as I buy beef, turkey, chicken. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know about you. But yeah, well, I yeah, do I'm... know about you. I, I lived with you for three something years, so <laughs> I do know about you. But but our listeners don't, so you talk about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll sprinkle it sprinkle it in here and there, but definitely, um, it's not high on my on my grocery list. Um, so yeah, I I don't eat a ton of fish, but at the same time, like um, supplementing omega threes is how I get those good fatty acids. Cause I think that also play a role, plays a role in what's going on here. Cause they referenced, you know, earlier in the article that supplementing omega threes, um, helps with insulin sensitivity. So, um, the mm-hmm. reason, you know, seeing that the fish enhances insulin sensitivity isn't a big surprise because of that. Yep. Yep. And, you know, part of the, proposed mechanism and it's almost kind of hard to talk about just proteins generally like this uh because of different amino acid profiles which they do comment on but essentially early work and and early studies with looking at proteins and insulin sensitivity suggest that increase um both expression and then translocation of glute 4 which is that door and muscle liver fat you know that monster zinc door to get glucose into those cells um is increased Oh, and well, I guess now that I'm looking at my notes again, specifically the article references muscle. So, but I was just giving a refresher on where you can find glute four. Mm-hmm. Um, but the this may be due to different effects of specific amino acids and amino acid profiles in in the proteins and things like that. And that actually reminded me of. I, do you remember when I was trying to do my own case study in myself with protein powders and amino acids? <laughs> yep. So. There's so many amino acids out there and they can ha- affect you differently. Um, you know, the most amino acids are glucogenic, which have the potential to turn to glucose. Uh, few are glucoketogenic, which could both turn to glucose or ketones. And even less are only ketogenic, meaning those amino acids, when it comes to turning into different things, will only turn into ketones. Now, also, there are different properties of different types of amino acids and how they can be used as well as how the body uses them. You know, tyrosine kinases are parts of enzymes, amino acids on enzymes that are part of the insulin signaling pathway and tyrosine is therefore amino acid. I take glutamine all the time for the healing of my gut lining. You know, there are different types of amino acids that can elicit different things. But this uh, case study I tried doing it myself was I wanted to First, I, when I was realizing that whey protein, me specifically, was god-awful for my blood sugar. Like, it raised it like no other. Given the control, or I had to start separating control. I was trying to do a case study myself, like three samples of like me taking protein powder at like 15 grams, 25 grams, 50 grams, 75 grams, like different scoops of protein powder. And then once I started doing it, I was doing it in the morning after I was working out. And sometimes my workout would be like two workouts and I'd be doing a HIIT workout. And I already talked about how my HIIT workouts like raise my blood sugar. So the result was Dr. Grady, when we were both in school, convinced me to stop because my blood sugars were getting trashed. 
And I was just like, you can physically see the difference on my face and my skin and on my like everything about me that I was not feeling good for a long time. And, uh, but I was trying to document on me personally with lots of trials, how different amounts of protein affected me. And therefore then I also wanted different protein powders, which would have different amino acid profiles and track how that affected my blood sugar. And if I did that in a controlled way, I there could see, because there's not a lot of studies on this. I remember extensively like going on PubMed, going on other Google Scholar, all these of how each amino acid raises blood sugar differently. There's not a whole lot of research on that. So I was trying to do it on myself. And then it was just really hard. There's a reason why we don't use humans in a lot of these studies, because ethically, A, it's bad. B, you put people at harm. And see, you waste a lot of good protein powder because, you know, <laughs> gains. It's important. Uh, <laughs> um, but this all wraps up the point of amino acids, different amino acids and in different combinations, even at different times, give you different effects on your blood sugar through metabolic pathways, through insulin sensitivity, through glucose sparing, through all these different ways. And that's really important. You can use that to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, going over the protein sources and seeing which ones your body processes better is really important. I think we talked a little bit either last time or the time before about, um, the different protein powders, because with protein powders, it's pretty much already digested for you. Um, and so it's going to be absorbed much faster. And so seeing how that affects your body versus having an animal source of protein, and also the different sources of those powders, um, because not only can you have sometimes immune reactions to different forms of protein, but at the same time, you can absorb things differently as well. So they can affect blood sugar in many different ways. And so seeing which ones um, are congruent with your body and your goals, um, because you know some powders may, may help with certain things, but then others, but then in other areas of your body, like digestion or different immune things, um, they may not be really beneficial. So finding the best one for you. Um, and I'll say just off of my experience with working with patients, um, it seems like, uh, the bone, bone broth protein and or collagen protein seems to be pretty, uh, do pretty well with a lot of people, at least in regards, especially to their immune system. Um, it doesn't, uh, react as much as a lot of the other protein powders. Mm. Yeah, I was watching um, a video of another doc. Somebody asked him about collagen protein. And he's like, ah, it's just a gimmick. Um, but again, context with everything. Mm-hmm. You just said in the context of your immune system, mm-hmm. right? So there you go. That's the difference of somebody just generally asking, should I take collagen mm-hmm. versus what will help me balance my immune system and is more immune neutral? Yeah. You're finding in your practice bone broth and collagen type proteins is really safe, you know? Um, so that's uh, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that question, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people will take collagen because of, you know, skin health or something like that. And so, it's a problem. yeah. Yeah. So there's probably not as much science around that. Um, and it's not like you're going to drink a bunch of collagen protein and then have perfect skin, um, either, but having a good, healthy immune system can have a lot of different effects throughout the body. Right. Yeah. And that's essentially what that 
doc that I was watching was, he was like, well, collagen has a lot of, you know, biotin and biotin, um, you know, can help things like hair growth, skin, whatever. That's mm-hmm. only if you have a deficiency, we get plenty in the U S like blah, 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 blah. Um, which is all true things, mm-hmm. but yes. So he was making an assumption based on a very short question, but having the right context, maybe he would have answered differently. Mm-hmm. And, and you were framed your answer in within a specific context too. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, let's, uh, we're getting close to an hour and a half of recording time. So let's uh, round out, you know, third base going towards home um, for, you know, some diabetic wins. So uh, uh, what's a, uh, what's a diabetic win for you there, Grady? Yeah. Recently. So recently um, I've talked about this before, but I've been working out more and working out more consistently. So I've also upped my protein intake in response to that. And the last several weeks I've been, I've been really hungry at night. And so I've been eating a lot of animal protein um, at pretty fairly late at night because I'll, I've been working out after I get done from work. So then I don't get home till like, you know, nine o'clock or something like that. So then that's when I'm eating. And so when I eat animal protein that late, even like after I usually stop eating animal protein, um, I try to cut it off around six and because my digestive system really likes catching up at night and um, digesting food in the middle of the night um, has a lot of different effects on my body, especially in regards to my blood sugar. So um, I was starting to notice that my blood sugar was um, staying pretty high throughout the night. And especially when I wake up in the morning, it'd be pretty high. So I had to, so I was kind of playing with my um, basal rate at night, but then ultimately um, I knew, you know, cause, cause I know my body, I knew it wasn't, wasn't the best scenario for me. So I started thinking about, all right, I still want to have protein and enough protein to um, supplement all the, you know, breaking down of muscle tissue that I'm doing in the gym. And so I compromised and I've started to um, have bone broth protein um, right after I get done working out. Um, So basically shortly before bed, because that's getting pretty late already. And it's made a huge difference. Um, I'm able to stay really consistent or my blood sugar stays really stable throughout the night. Um, And even um, towards the, uh, towards the morning, it's, it starts to drop. So it tells me that my insulin sensitivity um, is getting better because of that. So um, so that's been a win for me um, to be able nice. to navigate that a little bit better. Nice. It's always because, you know, if you go from not working out a lot or working out at some baseline level and you're increasing it as a type 1 diabetic, it's like, a, how is this going to change everything? You know, mm-hmm. you then throw life in there. You throw working 40, 50, 60 hours. You throw working in, uh, watching your kids and now, or, you know, trying to work out and while you're now working from home and now your kids are being homeschooled and what, or whatever have you to get those wins of figuring out, Oh, maybe if I do this and I know my body likes this, you know, but figuring it out, psh, that's huge. That's mm-hmm. literally what um, living free and living the life you deserve is all about. That's awesome, man. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Yeah. What about you? What's been mm-hmm. a win for you? So more on the 
frustrating side. Uh, well, it's a win, but the frustrating like insurance side of things. So uh, I have, because of my, how much I'm working and things like that, I haven't had a lot of free time to make a lot of calls I need to for my diabetes, i.e. calling my insurance, calling um, different third-party administrators or TPAs of different health products such as Dexcom or such as Medtronic or such as XYZ or whatever have you. And so, but all of a sudden, my uh, guardian for my Medtronic, my CGM, stopped working. It was literally like three days into me putting it in. And I got ticked. I was like, I just like put the sensor in like, and I just changed this last one after two days and I already have to call them to say, give me more, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I figured after troubleshooting, that was actually the guardian self, the link, hmm. like my link three. And so I was like, well, it has been a while since I've had it. You know, I was thinking about the time frame. This is where the diabetic one comes in. Somebody on the other line, just was a straight up baller. Was a, <laughs> was incredible. Literally, like from the scene of Mr. Incredible. So while I was on the phone with this person, they were able to navigate me in a way that I was truthful and honest. But I said the right things in the right way to get a new within warranty within warranty uh, link without having to pay anything or use my insurance. Because essentially, nice. I, you know, like you've talked about, you know, you've gotten your own insurance recently. Um, I have new type of insurance and I've just started the conversation. I'm saying, okay, new insurance, like, what do you prefer? Do you prefer this type of pump? Do you prefer this pump? What kind of test strips? Like I'm trying to figure out the most cost-effective way with my deductible and how to use my money and how to use my insurance in a way that it doesn't break my bank, but mm -hmm. I am able to manage the diabetes the way that I know how that I like to do. So, so I'm still like in that way of figuring that out. So the last thing I wanted to do was have to go through my insurance, my new insurance and go everything. And so this guy was essentially like from the scene in the Incredibles. He was like, I would like to help you, but I can't. You know, this is the scene from the first Incredibles when he's like super depressed, hasn't got like his old suit yet even. It's like, I'd like to tell you to file form C3B and talk to Roz, but I can't. And the old lady in Incredibles is like, what? And then he like shoves the form like in her face, like form <laughs> C3B. I'd like to tell you. And, and then later in the Incredibles, he's like, I don't understand, Bob, how all your clients know all the loopholes of our system. <laughs> He's like, who's protecting our shareholders, Bob? And uh, this guy at the other phone uh, was, was a straight up G and he helped me figure out a way to stay within warranty, get a new one without utilizing my insurance. Um, so that took some, so much stress. And it was like within 24 hours, he sent it to me. He like nice. overnight it, it. And then I got it super fast and was just like, super awesome experience it's like i'd appreciate you know you giving me a review i was like i'll give you a million <laughs> oh reviews. yeah yeah like mr incredible i'll give you like a million <laughs> so it was a diabetic win because it was somebody else helping me navigate a frustrating side of living with diabetes which is the insurance side which is the logistics side of figuring everything else out, making calls, things like that. And um, that just felt like a win because it made me feel like I wasn't alone. It made me feel like somebody mm -hmm. understood. And as well as, you know, financially was a win and all these other things. So I'm yeah. 
it was a uh, it was a real big help and so shout out to that guy and just shout out to anybody who gets and understands and you know you might be part of a system you might be part of a week like a giant machine but if you understand where people are coming from and able to just be honest still and, and make things work not good good on you and, and shout out to those people because that's really how uh you know i was to this day even though it's been weeks now well i guess it's been two weeks but Anyways, that was my diabetic win recently, and I'm very happy about it. And even the more I talk about it now, the happier I get because I just think about, you know, some guy I've never met somewhere else in the country totally helped me in a way that he didn't have to. He could have totally just been like, well, you know, what's your insurance ID? Yep. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to have somebody advocating for you. And like I said, it's even nicer that he was a complete stranger. It just makes you feel good, like – it feels good to do that for somebody, but it also feels good to have that done for you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the fact that I was a stranger, like, you know, I have friends that work in medical device departments and I'm trying to get some hookups on some pre samples of different things. And, um, but that's like a buddy, right? That's a friend. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is so, you know, I do things for him. He does things for me, whatever. Uh, but this guy literally didn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. So just a little acts of kindness that, one people can do to one another diabetic or not diabetic related you know that's especially in a year where everyone's at each other's throats tensions are high people are scared people are angry Mm -hmm. you know sharing good things sharing good news is is always helpful so uh so in the next couple episodes we're actually gonna have some guests here yeah grady and i'm super excited it's been a while since we've had a guest i'm really really excited um you know for the next two guests one is uh somebody that i started contacting with um in japan um who is a type 1 diabetic and but follows a carnivore diet uses mdis and then you know is able to have pretty steady blood sugar um with that method which i think is super interesting because both you and i don't only eat carnivore and definitely don't do mdis you know and Mm -hmm. i think that's a super super interesting way of going about it in fact that you're just from a different country like it's gonna be super cool just talking yeah. to somebody you know from a different country oh yeah um, so then you know the other another guest is gonna be dr stefan hussey and he's gonna be he's a funk med practitioner he's a chiropractor he's a type 1 diabetic himself and very excited for the conversation we'll have with him uh you know and he's a health coach and uh, just to get to know him for the first time and talk to him. So we had some good episodes lined up, some good content and excited to share it more with people, uh, whether it be on YouTube, Apple podcasts, Spotify, things like that. So stay tuned. And as always, we always appreciate people listening, especially since we rambled about an article that both you and I don't agree with per se, <laughs> but yeah, we were able to find meaningful conversations and truths in them anyways. So mm-hmm. cool. Cool. Well, that, Again, thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, 
you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.